Hey everybody, this is Stuart and I'm here with a Hey everybody, this is Stuart and I'm here with a quick disclaimer which I haven't had to do for I don't know, 4 or 5 episodes now. The interview interview you were about to hear was something that we originally recorded for our Teach Me About the Great Lakes election special that we released a couple weeks ago. However, we didn't end up talking about the election that much and so as a result, I just decided to release it as a separate episode because I think it stands on its own just fine. In fact, I think it's a really interesting conversation about environmental politics in the Great Lakes region and uh, some stuff on the Upper Peninsula that I had no idea existed, plus a cool sandwich story. So, all around, it's it's a great episode on its own. So, uh, thank you for listening. Please take a minute, if you can, to give us a review or a subscription, or maybe you tell your friends about us, and uh, stay safe this holiday season. It's starting to get a little nuts out there. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Teach me about the Great Lakes. Welcome back, everybody, to Teach Me About the Great Lakes. Unless I screw something up, this is part two of our election special. Uh, And, uh, you know, it's election season. Everybody's getting fired up to vote. Hopefully you have voted. If you haven't, hopefully you will vote. Uh, But I wanted to talk with some people who know more about politics in the Great Lakes than I do, because, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about what a wonderful resource this is, a cultural and environmental and economic resource. Well, uh, you know, politics ties right into that. And so I thought we would call up some folks who are smarter about that than I am and talk to them about it. And so I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, who is Dr. Camden Bird. Uh, He is an assistant professor of history at Eastern Illinois University, home of New Orleans Saints head coach Sean Payton, as I'm sure you knew. Uh, Camden, how are you today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Thanks. We're in the home stretch now, uh, election-wise. And so yep. uh, I don't know. I guess your job doesn't really have you necessarily following it all that closely, but I still, I'm still feeling it, man. That's what it is. Still feeling it. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I'm, you know, following everything as closely as I can. Still have to write lectures now and again and teach. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an energizing time. Yeah. Energizing time is one way to phrase it. So uh, <laughs> let's sort of look at this. So you're a professor of history, not poli sci, but you're looking at kind of environment and politics in the in the Midwest and elsewhere, maybe. Uh, and and so my understanding, tell me if I'm wrong, is that your research sort of explores the interaction between nature, business, and culture, especially in like the 19th century. Uh, mm-hmm. So so what can you tell me about how do people view the Great Lakes kind of, you know, in the early days of America or the 19th century? Um, you know, how do people interact with or, or view the Great Lakes then? Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, it's a lot of it is, and, and you're right to point out, I study sort of the history of humans relationship to the natural environment over time. And, and to, to be hundred percent, you know, like accurate, like there's not one way that people view it because it often depends on who we're talking about, their cultural baggage, their desires for the natural environment and their preconceived notions about what nature is supposed to be. So really what I do is study different groups and how they perceive the environment, how they hope to harness it or not at all, and how that relationship changes over time, because it does, in fact, change over time. So it's also that question of history is just because this group felt this way about it at one point, how does that change? What sort of encourages changing perceptions to occur uh, and sort of uh, essentially sort of, you know, I am a historian. We study change over time. So that's very much a question that I'm interested in. So broadly speaking, uh, if we're talking about the 19th century and we're talking about early early America in the 19th century, um, the Great Lakes uh, and the Great Lakes region was seen as sort of this duality of both daunting in its sort of um, rugged, wild, um, untamed wilderness, 
but also uh, potentially very profitable. I, I'm thinking if, if you were to go back and, and read, let's say, the journals of Henry Schoolcraft, who was an early naturalist and um, an explorer uh, who was tasked to sort of go through the Great Lakes region and, and, and see what was going on in the early 1820s. Uh, he would have sort of hit you with descriptions that are both, um, you know, uh, you know, he sees the the Grand Sable Dunes and he talks about it as being desolate, barren, uh, devoid of life up in the UP. Um, but then also seeing, you know, evidence of French or Native American uh, agriculture and seeing this as a potential for development that, you know, uh, certainly not for Native Americans. Let's be clear, Henry Schoolcraft and, and part of that American imperial agenda was to open it up for Americans and, and Euro-Americans broadly. But um, it was t wilderness to be tamed and turned into profitable landscapes. Okay. <laughs> and so so I don't know this schoolcraft. I'll have to read about him. But but so the idea yeah. was that it was devoid of life, but life defined as, you know, white European dudes. Uh, right. Well, right, and, right. And, and, and they're women folk, I suppose. Yes. Uh, right. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it would be something to look at agriculture, see the signs of ag, uh, life right. is elsewhere. It, it's, yeah. it's potential, but it's not it's not as, as enlightened or civilized as perhaps – as he would see right. it to be. Yes. Yeah. And so I was up on the UP. So it was, there was no uh, Sault Ste. Marie then, or, or maybe there was, I don't right. know. Uh, and so, so there's the duality of like this nature and the frontier. And um, if I hadn't been fixing the YouTube link, I would have heard the second part of that duality. However, <laughs> uh, I was yeah. fixing the YouTube link. So the second part of that duality is. So the duality of being sort of oh, wilderness, gotcha. scary frontier, but also very uh, sort of, there, there's a ton of potential in this area, right? Like yeah. they, they know that the, the fish runs are incredible in the yeah. Great Lakes, that this could be harnessed somehow, you know, if there's a way to get these to a market that can use them. Um, there's a lot of technological issues there, but early yeah. on, that's certainly a concern. Okay. It's seen as a growth opportunity. Yeah, it really was. And so so back then in the 19th century, um, had how far, what, do you know how far like West people had explored in terms of up in the Great Lakes? So the the, the UP was new. Um, where else had, well, had, well and, Again, by people, I have the very specific definition of <laughs> Europeans. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. 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 Uh, so no, that's a great. It's a great question, and it, yes, obviously, um, Native Americans. This is their homeland, traditional uh, homelands. They've used this landscape, um, know it very well. The French, though, have been tromping around in the Great Lakes region uh, throughout the 17th century and know it very well. You know, too, Sault Ste. Marie. Right, mm -hmm. this is a French town, French settlement name. Um, and so by the time, you know, Americans are really sort of moving into and exploring this region, um, not only are they seeing plenty of evidence of Native American uh, uh, culture, but they're, they're also seeing evidence of French Canadian culture okay. um, that is still existent in the region as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so when you talk about potential, again, it seems to me like we're getting this idea that, that strike me as very big in the early and the 19th and 20th centuries about like uh, harnessing but dominating nature for our benefit, mm -hmm. right? Or another good example would be the Erie Canal, which I think you've done a little bit of work on. Uh, and, you know, that's another thing where you're building a canal and you're constructing uh, something so that we can control nature, right? Is that, was that a big kind of theme of the early, uh, early days? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, what, you know, this is the 19th century mentality, uh, except for some outliers that we can talk about, maybe some romantics. Uh, but the, the, the idea was like, what is good? What good is all this potential if we're not, if we're not capitalizing on yeah. it? Which is to say something like the Erie Canal, which is going to be critical to open up the Great Lakes region for trade and commerce by get, making it possible for farmers and other goods to actually move to 
eastern seaports where it could be sold and actually be a valued commodity. And I, I think that's a key point there is the natural goods are valued based on their potential market right. worth. And, and sort of maximizing that is the key here in the 19th century. I see. And so the big idea was we got to we got to get these goods, get this potential, and then get it to the population centers um, through whatever means necessary, by hook or by crook, I suppose, or by train or by well, the one plane, train, right. canal boats, all of it. Yeah, yes. you name ships. it. Yeah, there's going to be mules involved. Ships. He said ships, people. Um, yeah, there there are mules. Uh, I know. That, yeah. I'm sorry, is that a boat? I know there's a, a, a critical distinction. There. No, no, I don't know. I just wanted to be sure. We've had two episodes in a row with a euphemistic spit, um, oh. and so. <laughs> we wanted to be very clear about what was being said. You mentioned romantics. Let's talk about the couple yeah. outlier romantics. So, so who were these romantics um, who, who maybe felt differently? I mean, certainly we can talk about, and it's a complicated relationship because nature can mean different things, but you have people who are clearly skeptical of the sort of purely market-driven philosophy. And some of the biggest ones, you know, when I teach – uh, an environmental history course, American environmental history course, you can't ignore people like um, Thoreau, right, who has who's very um, uncomfortable with an increasingly market driven society so much so that he sort of is he sees it as disorienting. He sees it as um, sort of a degradation to the, the human spirit. Uh, and so he's just going to go out. You know, this is in New England on the Great Lakes region, but he's just going to walk out and, uh, you know, go live and be a bean farmer uh, or, or, or yeah, plant beans and live out in Walden Pond for two years and, and, and explore that life. Um, I mean, obviously, you think about someone like Teddy Roosevelt, yeah. who's interested in conservation. Um, you see the rise of the Forest Service at the turn of the 20th century as um, well. Obviously, John Muir, who is very much a romantic in the sense that he sees nature, specifically the Sierra Nevadas, but he sees nature as a cathedral. You know, he sees it as this is where you meet God. Uh, not at church. So, yeah, yeah. it's already right. I, it didn't occur to me, but of course, you're talking about kind of the roots of the whole environmental thing in the United States and, and like the, you know, preservation versus conservation, uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, Gilbert, what's his name, and John Weir and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Gilbert and so, and Joe and yeah. All, yes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so you see, uh, and so you see that in the Great Lakes themselves. And, and, uh, and you have, you know, that, there was really the idea, it seems what you're telling me, of, of uh, uh, using nature for what it's worth, whether or not people were thinking about conserving, you know, conservation, wise use or, or, or just, you know, sucking it till it's dry. It's not clear. <laughs> necessarily. Yeah. And, and especially in the Great Lakes. And I will say you have this transformation that occurs in the second half of the 19th century, particularly in the, the upper Midwest. Right. Okay. These are logging areas. They're not as good as agricultural. So they are actually seen as, for various reasons, an escape from modern life, escape from urban centers like Chicago, Detroit, Milwaukee. And you see an entire tourism industry that has redefined what you know, the healthful benefits of nature are, and specifically talking about the upper Midwest as a healthful retreat from the over anxieties of urban living, right? So you, in many ways, that time period is redefining what the role of particular natural landscapes can mean to American culture. Hmm. Uh, so you see a reinvention of the idea of nature in that, in that sense. Really? Huh. I didn't realize that that was kind of a, a novel idea at the time. This, this notion <laughs> right. of nature is refuge, right? 
um, which we think about a lot as we don't get to spend as much time in nature or travel as far. You know, there's not a lot of beautiful right. nature in West Lafayette. There's some, but, you know, it'd be really <laughs> great to be able to go and spend some weeks at a place, but that's just not really on the table right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So then we have environment as, of course, something that we, um, you know, should dominate and control. Uh, mm-hmm. in order to uh, expand society, produce more. And we have environment as refuge. But it mm-hmm. was later, much later. Well, I don't know how much later was it when we started to think of the environment, um, either generally in the Great Lakes, as something that we are affecting in a negative way. Uh, you know, because I, you know, about the environmental movement of the 60s and 70s, you know, Rachel Carson and what have you. Was there a lead up to that? Or do you see that anywhere in the Great Lakes? Um, yeah, what's, what's interesting about what makes like the 60s and 70s era different than previous conservation efforts, because I will say, uh, especially in the Great Lakes region, again, in the upper Midwest is what I'm most familiar with, but you start to see um, conservation districts, right? You're going to see national forests get put into place. I believe like the Hiawatha National Forest is in the 1930s. Um, You're going to start to see, you know, even during the Great Deal, you know, the the Depression era, and, and you have federal programs that are rebuilding, you know, destroyed ecosystems because of, you know, rampant capitalism of lumber mm-hmm. mining and, and, and lumbering and mining and whatnot. So um, there is precedent. What I will say is about the 60s and 70s was where some of those efforts were about um, conservation of pure natural resources. Um, the 60s and 70s will see sort of a chemical element brought into the conversation in an unprecedented way, which is to say the question of, well, two things, right? How does a, a chemical affect the environment or potentially human health, right? Because that's a big part of this as well. Um, but then you start to see the rise of like ecology as a science as opposed to environment as uh, as, as a particular science. Not that environment's not a science, but the notion that all these organisms are connected and related right. and it complicates, you know, Notions of conservation, which is to say, if you're a Forest Service conservation person, you're interested about trees. You're not necessarily interested about specific birds. You're not, inter- you know, or lichen or things like that. That starts to change during this time period as well, and it throws off sort of that has, you know, that relationship uh, that people have built to their landscape in some ways. Oh, that's interesting, huh? So seeing so the, with the rise of ecological sciences, what you're really seeing is a more holistic, I guess, uh, uh, view of how things work. I was talking to some, yeah. some students the other day at a high school, um, and we were talking about, you know, conserving individual species. And I was describing the importance of habitat or whatever. And of course, that's that huh. exact thing. It never even occurred to me because I'm kind of stupid. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> well, no, I think it makes sense. It's, it's a, there's a history to these things, you yeah. know, and that's the, the reality of it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, and so then, uh, but so in the Great Lakes specifically, as the environmental region took off, this is also the seat of so many industries, right? Um, in, in the 60s and 70s, you think of steel, and I don't know the exact history here, but there's steel, there's the auto, there's all these extractive industries, probably mm-hmm. because of just what you're saying. Everybody saw the wonderful natural resource and they're like, heck yeah, let's send them back east, baby. And, yeah. um, and, 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 but this is the economy. Uh, in many ways, right? right? And Michigan, right. I don't know a ton about Michigan, but you think about Michigan specifically, it has that duality right there where it's, or, it, or maybe it's a different duality where it's like unbelievably beautiful place to go, but also we're taking everything we can uh, for cars and, and whatever. So was the environmental movement, you know, uh, I imagine that was met with a little bit of uh, resistance, at least in some places in, in the Great Lakes region. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you, you've absolutely nailed the sort of how shattering 
environmental movements or, or, or conservation and preservation movements can be because in many cases you have, especially in the upper Midwest, and that's not even just Michigan, but, you know, places like Minnesota as well, where there is both um, great, you know, uh, timber to be harvested, but you also have, you know, historically prolific iron mines uh, in those regions too. And the iron is the, you know, the backbone of the economy of many of those towns, many of those communities. Um, and absolutely, the, you know, to mine is to, uh, you know, is potentially a very harmful environmental um, action. And it is necessary for local economies, but it is, you know, if you're balancing the notion of, you know, environmental preservation against uh, mining that, you know, that's a tough, that's a tough um, line to sort of, uh, navigate there. Uh, and that, and it does come with, um, some political pushback. And, and this is, uh, the, an article that I had written, right. For the, this recent collection of, um, the history of conservative politics in, in the upper Midwest is this conversation of what does the environmental movement do to the economy and how does that get politicized? Yeah. And so I forgot to plug the article in the book in the very beginning. Um, so yes, Camden, much like uh, the guest from part one of our politics extravaganza, uh, contributed or, or a chapter to this book called, uh, uh, I will look up the title, and I will link to it in the show note, Conservative Heartland, yeah. I think. Yes, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, the Conservative Heartland, a political history of post-war um, the post-war American Midwest. And we'll have a link to that. You should check that book out. It's actually, I've read bits of it as prepping for this and it's very interesting stuff. Um, it's timely too, I'd say, you know, I mean, you know, I saw, I, I, you know, I've seen bits of what you do with the previous interview and talking about the, the timeliness of the debates of yep. Midwest as swing state as politically relevant. I mean, it's a great publication for understanding today. Yeah, no, that's great. And my plug too. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So go get the book. <laughs> this is two times in a row. Just buy the book. It's not that expensive. Um, or yeah. get it from the library. I don't care. Uh, but anyway, I, and, and so we did spend some time with Chris Devine uh, uh -huh. talking about, you know, how the Midwest is a battleground. One thing that didn't occur to me is one of the reasons that the Midwest is a battleground is because it's, it could go either way, right? So many of the states, right. when it, you're not a battleground, Alabama is not going to be a battleground or Louisiana, where I come from, is not going to be a presidential battleground, at least on a consistent basis um, uh -huh. going forward. Uh -huh. And, and so, uh, but is is part of that, and this may be outside your field, so you can tell me if so. Is part of the reason that it's so close? It has to do with this relationship you're talking about. Where on the one hand, you know, we're extracting and, and using, and on the other hand, it's all this beautiful place where people want to preserve, and it's sort of that that dual nature right there. Do you think that contributes to kind of the closeness of a lot of the politics in the region? Yeah, and th that's that's a great question, and that that was really sort of the heart of the question that I started with with that essay is to say the traditional sort of you know, the brief rundown of the political history of the Midwest is essentially, you know, you have your new deal, new deal coalition, which is um, Democratic voters who are very pro-union. They're very industrial workforce, blue collar. Um, and that is why, you know, knowing the history of places in the Midwest, Illinois, Michigan, Milwaukee, you know, like these are industrial centers that tend to uh, obviously support policies that are supporting of blue collar workers. As you start to see a variety of forces that come about in the 60s and the 70s, those politics start to shift and has made this region more of a battleground than obviously, you know, as you said, your home state of Louisiana. Um, and so I was interested in like the traditional narrative is you've got social unrest in the 60s, you've got Vietnam War, which starts to shake things up. You have the rise of this new political left in the 60s as well. And it, it, it starts to shatter things. But what I was 
hoping to answer with this essay was to say, well, what about the politics of environmentalism, which have been largely ignored in the American Midwest uh, political history and in fact have almost focused exclusively on places out west, places that are huge, uh, you know, huge swaths of land owned by the federal government. And the traditional narrative is that an anti-environmental politics starts to build in the 70s out west with people critiquing how much the federal government owns how much wilderness preservation is happening, and the backlash starts out there. I was interested in what happens when environmentalism comes to the mining regions of the upper Midwest. Right. And so, yeah. so, so, right. So the narrative is that there's backlash out West. I mean, you can still see that going on today with some of what's happening yeah. uh, with the BL, yeah. oh, hold on, Bureau of Land Management, that BLM um, uh, yeah. protests <laughs> yes, and yes. things like that. Uh, uh, and so, but so what is the deal with the anti-environmentalism in the Midwest? Did you find that it was a significant seed of it, maybe because of some of what we've been talking about or, or, or what? Yeah, it was interesting. And it, it there's this really um, – it's, it's, you know, it's funny when I, I wrote the history because if you, if you live uh, like north of the 45th parallel in the upper Midwest, uh, you sort of know the – you, you at least know that at, at certain points in American history, the upper peninsula itself has attempted to secede from the state of Michigan. And I was sort of interested in this. This is sort of in, in some ways seen as like poppy history and, and, and not uh, sort of kookiness. Um, but I was interested in sort of studying that as a real historical phenomenon by saying, um, OK, who is this? Who's leading this? How serious is this movement? Um, and what are they talking about? And, and it started by uh, doing some research up at Northern Michigan University. They have great archives up there and I can't promote them enough. Um, but the papers of... Um, a state rep named Dominic Jacobetti, who was on paper um, like a classic New Deal Democrat. He is, you know, born, he's raised in the, in the UP in Nagani, which is a very steel mining town. Um, he he works in the mines after he graduates from high school. Jo he rises the ranks of the local union organization, becomes a president of the union. You know, it's, it's following that sort of very blue collar. He's a Democrat. But he starts to break away from the party line when these environmental issues, these environmental laws start coming into place, um, particularly things like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act, because he sees these as potentially damaging to the industries of steel mining in the Upper Peninsula. Um, and so he starts a backlash. Uh, yeah, sorry. No, no, that's good. Have, that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Because so the local yeah. issues for him take over uh, um – I'm not enough. Anyway, I was going to try and draw no, some parallels no, to current, but I don't actually know it well enough, so I don't want to speak <laughs> no, out of it. But absolutely right, which is to say, he he sees himself still as a New Deal Democrat, but this this issue is starting to change that coalition in some ways, mm -hmm. um, and, and so much so that he is going to begin in the late '60s to organize in '70s. He's going to organize a secession movement. Okay, now this is interesting. So yes. he was going to organize a secession, like secede. Like from the U.S. or become your own from Michigan? From he wanted to be his own state. His own state. Uh, he wanted the UP to be the fifty-first state, the state of Superior. Superior. <laughs> yes, um, and so he he starts organizing. He starts organizing, right? And this is a grassroots movement, um, and he does this a few different ways. Right? He starts. He 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 he's reaching out to local industry leaders to start having them pr talk about why environmental laws are bad, right? He's reaching out to them. Hey, right. like this clean water act, this clean air act, like talk to me, how is this going to hurt you? Right. He's seeking for them to inform, uh, 
his sort of political movement and get, say, and you know, he gets, he gets the answers he wants. He gets people saying like energy companies saying, oh, well, like we'll have to pass these on to the consumers. And we have to understand that like in the 1960s, we have underground mines that are going out of business because right. mining out West is taking off. It's, it's much easier out West, you know, like this mining in this part of the country has been going on for a hundred years. Uh, you got to go pretty deep down to find it in, in the upper Midwest. So it's much easier to get it out West or you have steel coming in from places like China. Yep. And so it's just the, the, the economy is collapsing. He's looking for someone to put this on and it is going to be environmental laws and environmentalism that it's going to be the, right. the target. Yeah. That often is the target there without commenting on the, the, uh, wisdom of that. Um, and, right, and, right. and so, uh, cause I'm not allowed to. Um, but, uh, so what, uh, so what was the strategy there? So the idea is these are bad. So we're going to pull out of Michigan, but you're still going to be subjected to the laws, right? So subject, yes, subject to the federal laws, but not subject to, because also the state of Michigan is passing a series of laws at this time period as well, which they see as just too much. Um, and so therefore, um, the, the, the logic is, well, you have a local community who might not be so interested in enforcing some of these laws. Because right. a lot of, you know, a lot of the EPA rules, like especially like, um, you know, require sort of a, a, a motivating body to sue or, or you know, monitor yeah. uh, environmental hazards. And so um, the notion is that we can dodge the Michigan stuff, at least if we become this 51st state. And if it's a more laissez-faire place for a lot right. of that, right. yeah, I you're got not going to be. Yes, local communities aren't going to be inclined to, uh, you know, shut down the mine, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, yeah, um, huh? That's interesting. And so, so they wanted to create the state of Superior, which is uh, just wonderfully named. If you're going to name yourself yeah. something, you might as well <laughs> yes. roll, right? Uh, but but uh, and so, how did obviously it didn't happen? Were they that close to it or? Were they close to getting it done? I mean, the, clo the closest they got was in this seventies, uh, the seventies push. And again, like historically thinking, the seventies are, you know, this is the time of incredible recession. This the economy you have yep. stagflation. It's a bad time to be in America in the seventies. It's, it's an anxious time. This is also when you see national politicians start to flip on environmental issues. What used to be a bipartisan um, agreement to get at some of these environmental rules will start to turn more partisan in the 1970s oh, because of these economic issues. Yeah. Because okay. um, I've always, I've always wondered about that. Like, like how did the clean water act and the clean air act, those would never pass today um, in a, a bipartisan way. Um, right. Uh, and so I've always kind of wondered, and I didn't know if it was um, because that was also when Watergate was happening. And so there was a need mm. to be seen pushing back, but you're saying that it, it didn't really become partisan environmentalism. Well, um, the, the specific mechanisms by which we try to achieve environmental, uh, uh, quality or whatever didn't become partisan until a bit later then, or it was later in the seventies. Right. Okay. Yeah. And th there's a great book. If anyone's interested in this, um, it's called the Republican reversal, which is also tracking sort of the long-term historical trends of conservative politics and, um, and sort of the, the the laws of it. And it complicates the narrative quite a bit, doesn't sort of simplify it. But yes, the broad strokes are the 70s start to flip things around hmm. um, with some minor successes since then, as far as if you're, you know, environmentally minded. Uh, but <laughs> um, but as far as the UP goes, they, they, they did get the attorney general of the state of Michigan to weigh in and say, okay, what steps do you need to take 
um, to become a separate state. And, the, and one of those, you know, there's three things. It's, you have to get the majority of the residents of the Upper Peninsula to agree to secession. Uh, you have to write a constitution. The U.S. Congress has to approve it. Uh, and then, of course, the state of Michigan also has to vote and approve it as well. Those are significant hurdles. Yeah. They never, yeah, they never quite make it to uh, the second task because Jacobetti will start sending out these promote, you know, these these questionnaires, these promotional flyers saying why we need to become a separate state and really gauging the interest of of local residents to how serious are you, right? There's there's always sort of this lingering downstate tension with yeah. those who live yeah in the upper peninsula um and so but early on it became clear that the budgets couldn't possibly make it work you know like who's going to pay for the roads who's going to pay for the universities and colleges uh what about hospitals like the tax base of the upper peninsula simply you know does net need downstate urban centers to help fund those things that they've come to appreciate. Yeah, over. I've been there. It's not, there's not a lot going on in terms of like right. population. I mean, there's a bridge and a lock and a lot of woods and that's wonderful, but it's yes. not, it's not driving a whole state, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So is, um, is, is there a separatist movement today or a secessionist movement today still? Are people so fired up about this? It, it lingers. It does linger. And it tends to happen. Um, it tends to get louder during a recession, right? So you did have a bit of, uh, some mumblings about it in, let's say, after the 2008 recession, there was a mo you know a group of people who were interested in this. It tends to, uh, and by no means am I trying to sort of sound political, but it is often a libertarian sort of argument, mm -hmm. uh, sort of like manage our own sources, be our own economy, our local. It's very local. Um, you know, I, when I published this piece, I mean, I got a few emails from people saying like, "Thank you for giving," you know, you know calling attention to this history. We still need to do it. And, and I don't, I don't think I advocated for secession sure. at any point in my piece, um, <laughs> but I think they read into that perhaps. Uh, but it, I, I would say it's still there. You know, I, there are people on Twitter who advocate for it, whatever that means. And um, yeah, I think you'll see signs around every once in a while. Interesting. I had no idea this was a thing. Um, so that's, that's fascinating to hear about. <laughs> So uh, let's shift gears minor later. Something else I wanted to ask you about. So one thing we talk yeah. about a lot is methods here, because I love to hear about how people okay. do their work, uh, whether that's, and usually what we end up doing is saying, you know, we need to fund more scientists to collect more data because it's all important. But you call yourself a digital humanist. And mm -hmm. I will be honest, even though I was an English major and spent a lot of times around the humanities, I think I must be old enough that digital humanism did not exist when I was in college, or if it did, they didn't tell me about it. Maybe it's too powerful a tool for me. Um, so uh, how do you use digital tools to study humanities and histories? What kind of questions can you explore and stuff? Like, how is that different from, you know, yeah. uh, just going to the archives, which you like to do, but but what what is what is, what is is unlocked in the digital era, I guess? Uh, Stuart, I can assure you, as someone, as you who does science, I can assure you the technology that a lot of humanists are doing are, in fact, well in your wheelhouse. We are just playing catch up in many ways. Um, digital humanists, as, as far as I see, it, and this is a you know, this obviously is a big tent. Yeah, no, it's of, like yeah, yeah, no, it's my own ignorance. I'm sure that yeah. yeah. <laughs> but my my philosophy there is, and, and I am a sort of trained cultural historian, which is I am interested in sort of the feelings, the meanings, um, how people construct identity, and things like that. So it's not always. Um, conducive to the methodological approaches of digital humanities. I'm interested in using digital humanities to combine 
large data sometimes um, to sort of add depth and meaning to some of the cultural history questions that we ask of the time period. So, you know, projects that I'm interested in are going back in historical records of, you know, old bureaus or old associations, looking at the statistics that they're throwing around at the specific time period, recovering some of those statistics uh, to get a sense of real physical, you know, material changes that are happening in natural environments as they're recording that. This is data that, you know, is published. It's not accessible without like either great machine learning and or, um, you know, the skills of historians, which are, you know, just digging in the archives for hours and, and copying oh. over data to databases. Um, I see. So you'll go and look at just old ancient report, ancient, not ancient, literally, yeah. uh, metaphorically <laughs> ancient uh, uh, reports and, and find out what's there and then essentially create data sets that you can then analyze right. that were otherwise just buried in uh, books or in maybe in PDFs if you're lucky. Uh, yeah, and my yeah, and my my philosophy is that that data will give us more information than we had before uh, to start talking about meaning and cultural history. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm still, you know, I have to in case my advisor were to ever my former advisor were ever to see this, I am not sort of like this techno optimist, techno determinist. Uh, I very much believe that you know that this is just more evidence that we can use to reconstruct um, the past, right? Because right? the more evidence we have, the better you know the better idea we might have of how people lived, experienced, and, and knew the natural world uh, of, the, of, of yesterday. Huh. That's fascinating stuff. Uh, it really is. But that's actually, Camden, not why we invited you here on Teach Me About the Great Lakes. The reason <laughs> that we invited you here to Teach Me About the Great Lakes is there are two questions. The first of which is this. Oh, yeah. if, if you could uh, choose to have a great donut for breakfast or a great sandwich for lunch, which one would you choose and why? Oh, I'm going to hit you in the middle ground there, Stuart. Oh, and I, boy. I'm going to plug – this is maybe my biggest accomplishment while I lived and uh, in Rochester, um, where I, I did do my graduate studies. Uh, as you probably know, the, the dissertation needs to write. You know, you need to sit down. You need time. There was a great coffee shop slash brewery called Fifth Frame in downtown Rochester that I would spend my weekends <laughs> writing in the morning. So it was coffee only. I just need go. to, like, make sure – Okay, good. Okay. I was, I, was, uh, I was more intrigued than ever before. It was like, this is an <laughs> avenue. Hold on. The podcast has now changed. All right. So what's it's in Rochester, the fifth? Yeah, it's in Rochester. The name is Fifth Frame. Fifth Frame. Uh, I, was a veg- I am a vegetarian, and they mostly had meat-based breakfast sandwiches. So I kept custom ordering just an egg sandwich. And after about a year of this, they finally added the bird, B-U-R-D, no. to the menu. Uh, and this is like still like the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in the city of Rochester. I've got a sandwich named after me. Um, and then I like m- moved away like two days later. But it happened. It's real. It's still there. It's on the menu. Oh. You can take it to go. You know, don't have to sit there. I am at their website now. I encourage everybody listening to look down <laughs> at your telephone or whatever and uh, find this out. The bird. This is amazing. We have never interviewed a celebrity before. Uh <laughs> This is just, this I, is, and I suspect if you actually ask them why they named it there, that that local story is gone. But it's just because you know that's yeah. the name they saw on the credit card every time we custom ordered this thing. There it is, two eggs, yeah. cheddar. Now I do notice they call it a bastard roll, uh, so I don't know if that's a little <laughs> something something for you. Look at that, two <laughs> eggs and cheddar on a bastard. Nice. <laughs> yes. So that's like, yeah, this is. I will endorse that all day. And Rochester's a great town, great Great Lakes city that people don't often assume is a Great Lakes city, but I I will say it is. There we go. Um, 
look at that, the bird. Okay, great. I, yeah. I've gotten totally distracted. The second, I, we have to redo this whole deal. Um, no, the second question is this. Uh, what is one piece of life advice that you have for our listeners? It could be big or small, serious or silly. We like to give somebody something to take home and sort of think about in addition to reflecting on the environmental history of the Great Lakes and, you know, uh, digital humanities. What's, what's a bit of life advice from Dr. Camden? Oh, wow, that's tough. Um, no, I... Listen, we are in COVID times. We are we are in lockdown mode. I have gone deep into the well of podcasts. Like I'm a, I'm a pretty regular podcast listener, um, but I feel like I've really tried to find new ones or interesting ones, ones that are really good at narrating stories. Um, and I actually think one that is applicable, it's not Great Lakes focused, but does get at sort of an environmental history of community engagement with this rise of ecology science and in the modern environmental movement is this new one. It's put out of Portland, Oregon, I believe it's called Timber Wars. Timber Wars. Yeah. So it's about like this larger debate between environmentalists and local logging communities. And I think it's really well done. It's a great environment. I will assign it to an environmental history class because it's a great story and gets at some of the larger questions of and debates about environmentalism. Well, that is really cool. Uh, that yep. is some great advice. Go listen to the t- that Timber Wars. That's any yeah. any book about wars, like uh, in general, but not actual wars. Those no, those no, are or okay. not book. I guess here it's a podcast. I'm not yeah. as interested in actual wars because that's uh, too intimidating for me. But other other <laughs> that sounds really. It great. is not. Yes, no formal war though. I, I from what yeah. I've listened to, the tensions get high and perhaps get a little violent, but not war violent. <laughs> <laughs> I've got enough violence in my day to day existence. I don't need. I don't need more. Wonderful. Well, uh, Camden, great. I know you're on Twitter at Camden Bird, Bird with a U, not with an I or a yes. Y. Uh, and we'll link to that. Is there anywhere else that people can go to find out more about your work? Uh, yeah, I, um, my personal website, which is very complicated, www.camdenbird.com. Nailed it. Uh, yeah. you, you, can, yeah, you can get all my publications are there and feel free. I mean, if anyone's interested in reading my work or, you know, ideas about where to go for environmental history in general, I'd be happy to, you know, suggest books or whatever. Wonderful. Well, everybody do that. And also make sure to go check out uh, the book that Camden and uh, part one's guest, Dr. Chris Devine, uh, contributed chapters to. It's called The Conservative Heartland, A Political History of the Post-War American Midwest. Dr. Camden Bird of Eastern Illinois University, uh, thank you so much for coming on and teaching us all about the Great Lakes. Yes, thank you, Stuart. This was great. <laughs> 